0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 28 and go through verse uh, verse 7 of chapter 2. Genesis 1, 28 through 2, 7. The two accounts of creation... Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 and Genesis 2, 4 through 25 are designed respectively to demonstrate the all-wise and all-powerful sovereignty of God. First account, and his special creation of humanity to rule for him over all other created things. The second account. Though the creation stories are fundamentally theological and not scientific, nothing in them is contradicted by modern scientific understanding. Genesis insists that all forms of life were created after their kind. That is, they did not evolve across species lines. Most importantly, the man and the woman were created as the image of God. Genesis 1:26. In other words, humanity was created to represent God on earth, and to rule over all things in His name. Genesis 1:26 through 28. God's desire was to bless humanity, and to enjoy relationship with Him. Begin reading at Genesis chapter one at verse 28. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Amen. New Testament reading comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 8, going through verse 1 of chapter 4. The object of joy, of concentration, indeed, of all of life, is Christ. Paul's purpose in life was to know Christ experientially, experientially, becoming like him in his death and attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Like an athlete who does not waste time looking around, or looking back, Paul exerted all-out effort to reach the finish line of Christian maturity. He did not presume to have attained perfection and therefore fully pursued the goal of God's upward call in Christ Jesus. He likewise called for the Philippians to move forward in their Christian lives. Simultaneously, in this exhortation, he strongly denounced the false teachings of careless living on the one hand and spiritual perfectionism on the other. He appealed for unity and maturity by reminding them that they were citizens of heaven. Because the Philippians were intensely proud of their Roman citizenship, they would have quickly grasped all that Paul Paul meant. Finally, he reminded them that they would be transformed at the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. This is God's word. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the outward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example You have in us, for many of whom I have been often told, often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their their end is destruction. Their God is like their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we will wait Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians
1: 15. Paul's epistle to the Philippians is always a bit of a challenge because he will say things like, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That sounds somewhat countercultural. <laughs> to die is gain. And then he'll say things like, I, I'm really hard-pressed between whether I'd be rather be alive or rather be dead, because it's far better to be with Christ. Now, we don't, we don't generally tend to think that way. Though, as believers, we, we assume that, Yet, yeah, at some point we're going to be, and that's probably going to be really, really good. But we don't really spend as much time as we should thinking about what that's going to be like. And you say, well, that's good. we don't know what it's going to be like. And in a sense, even even if Paul was the man that rose into the third heavens, whatever he saw, he could not say. It was so beyond the ability to communicate that we don't have any more information about that. But we do have a great deal of information. And in today's passage, which incidentally is a passage in which I went over a lot of things over these particular verses last Sunday evening, but an entirely different, with an entirely different focus. Today, as we pass through these passages, I want us to focus upon the answer to, a, to the rather skeptical question that Paul postulates people have in their minds. What kind of bodies are we going to have? When if if we're, if, we're raised, if we're raised from the dead, what are our bodies going to be like It's a pretty good question it's a pretty pertinent question in uh in our circles in our church in our church family, in the families of our church, in our friends over the last couple of months there's been a whole series of deaths I mean people have people have died. People have died unexpectedly. People have died Well, you kind of knew they were going to sooner or later, but when they did, it was still a, a bit of a shock, and it takes, takes them getting used to the fact that they're not there now. Others who, who you knew it was going to happen sooner or later, all of a sudden they're gone. And oftentimes there's things unsaid and accounts not settled and I wish things had been different. I wish I'd been a better friend, a better better companion. Were they believers? Will I see them again? What, the, what will that be like? Let's read this passage, verses 42 through verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's going to say, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. This is what it's like when the dead are resurrected. What is sown it is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man... From heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, giver and sustainer of all life, he who called by the very word of God all things into being, he who sustains us every breath, every heartbeat, He who numbered our days when there were none of them. He who is sovereign over all things and is orchestrating all things for the good of his people and for his ultimate glory. Lord, we call upon you to enlighten our understanding by the grace of giving your spirit. Allow it to Allow it so open our, our minds to spiritual truths that we gain the comfort passages like this are meant to convey to us. Lord, we live in a, in a frivolous age. We live in a frightful age. We, are, we live in an age of anxiety in which, if, if nothing else, men fear most of all what they know will most certainly happen to all of them. They will die. And yet, Lord, you have given us great and precious promises concerning the life to come. Your people have a a rich inheritance that's being kept for them, and they're being kept for that inheritance. And when they pass, when they die, when this life comes to its end, they will enter a place of rest, enter a place of peace, but they will await a glad reawakening, a glad reunion, a time in which the, all the bodies will rise and that your people will rise in great glory. Lord, as we consider these truths, use them to strengthen our faith, to give us comfort in times of sorrow and distress, to give us peace in the midst of calamity. To enable us to to better live our lives for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now, brethren, this is is a phenomenal chapter. We've been many, many weeks here. Paul lays out the essentials of the Gospels very quickly. He points out by verse 11 that that all true apostles preach exactly the same gospel. He raises the possibility that perhaps Christ wasn't raised. Perhaps it's all a fairy tale. He says, if that's so, there's at least eight significant consequences, and they are all terrible. And then he says, but of course, Christ has been raised from the dead. He equates it. He equates it with all of Scripture. He says, this whole plan began before the foundation of the world. And it ends in the consummation of the age. Life that was given to Adam, the first man, and through Adam to all men, will consummate with the second Adam at the end of the age when everything has been placed under his feet. And he turns it all over to the Father. It's Genesis to Revelation. It's all there. Then he points out that Even pagans believe in a life after death. Even ancient graves have gifts buried with the dead. What do they need the gifts for if they don't believe in life after death? Paul says, You know the kind of ministry I have. Everywhere I go, I get beat up. Everywhere I go, I'm in danger. Terrible things are always happening to me. It's like I'm looking for trouble, and I assure you I'm not. So why would I keep doing this? If I didn't believe there was a greater reward, even should I be killed on the journey? And of course, ultimately, he will be. And he knew to live is Christ, to die is gain. Far better, which he ultimately achieves. About verse 33, he begins fine-tuning the point. He offers up three imperatives in the next couple of verses. He says, listen, don't be deceived about this. It really makes a difference what the culture's doing and make sure it's not deceiving you. Now we live in a very deceptive culture. We live in a culture, in a culture that worships the young and the healthy as though that's going to last forever. That's an ephemeral God, and it doesn't take much age to realize that's a reality. He says, pay attention to what's really going on, what's really valuable, what really counts. And verse 34 concludes, stop sinning. And then he gets, in a sense, really cynical. He starts putting questions in the minds of doubters. They'll say things like, okay, the dead are going to rise. How's that going to happen? And the one we're going to be dealing with today, okay, even if it did happen, what kind of a body are we going to have? Now, it is asked skeptically by people who think that way. They're fools. Paul calls them fools in verse 36. He says, if you ask that kind of a question, you're a foolish person. He explains things using a a very common analogy, the sort of thing we see all around us in in rural Suffolk, An, an agricultural analogy. Things get planted in certain times of the year, and they're there for a little while, and those seeds go into the ground, and after not too long, things start happening. And you turn around, and those bare fields... Some of them got corn on them. Some have cotton. Some of them have soybeans. Where did all that stuff come from? Well, it came from bags of little bitty seeds, and they were distributed, often dives, by great machines, and they were, you know, fertilizer and the rain fell and that sort of thing. But next thing you know, those aren't empty fields at all. They're going to be fields full of grain, full of corn, and full of soybeans and cotton and peanuts and things like this. He says, every one of those seeds, in a sense, had to die so that that plant would have life and come up and produce a thousand more seeds. He says, you see it all around you, and we see it all around us. It's absolutely necessary for those seeds to go into the ground and seemingly die in order to produce those crops, which are so necessary for us. They have to do that in order for those plants be be made possible. Okay. So something things have to die in order for there to be later life. Okay, what kind of life is that going to be? Now The hypothetical individuals Paul is raising are not the first ones to ask questions like that. Remember, the Sadducees came to Jesus, and they don't believe in the resurrection at all. They asked that that crazy question about the woman who had seven husbands, and they all died. Well, in the resurrection, whose husband, whose wife is she going to be? And, of course, they don't believe in the resurrection. They didn't really want an answer. They just tried to trip him up, and he says, you know, you're asking foolish questions like that because you don't know the scriptures, you may have the official position as teachers of Israel, as leadership in the religious system, but the bottom line is you don't know the word of God. And most people, when they talk about life after death, in fact, I'm thinking of the, the way the popular, the popular culture thinks about life after death. Think of movies. Think of television shows. Think of novels you read about the dead rising and what they're like. That's evidence that they don't know their Bibles. Now, I realize they're just trying to be entertaining, and sometimes it's very entertaining, but that's not Bible truth. Believers know where the truth is, and we're going to be passing through some passages that shed an awful lot of light on our resurrection bodies. But most people, when they think about such questions, they, they're picturing the dead coming back kind of like what they looked like the last time you saw them. I mean, in popular culture, they say, you know, murdered people with holes in them and pieces missing and things like that. You know, walking corpses. But at a minimum, when we think in terms of they were aged, they were diseased, they were pretty worn out, they have kind of decayed bodies, they're dragging themselves along with rags hanging off, that sort of thing. Well, if that's the resurrection life, what kind of life's that? How could Paul say, that would be better than this? Well, that's not the resurrection life. The answer to the question, what kind of body do they come what kind of, with what kind of body do they come at the resurrection? the answer is well not the kind that died not the kind that died now again that's exactly what happens agriculturally you throw that bean in the ground and the next thing you know there's a bush now we understand there is a connection between the bean and the bush but the bean is a whole lot different than the bush. And all of a sudden, there's all kinds of other beans on the bush. I'm thinking soybeans. I'm not sure where the bean is. Up, from, It may be below ground for all I know. But, so I don't pay that much attention to the field, but I know it works that way. Verse 37 tells us, what you sow is not the body that is to be. In fact, the way to think about it is this. Your physical body, the physical body that, that gets buried when you personally die, your phys- physical body will be like then what, your physical, what your, your physical body will be like then what your spiritual body is now, if you're a believer. Now, I'm, I'm going to take for granted that if you're a believer, your spiritual body is at least alive. It may not be as he- most healthy. It may not be as mature as it ought to be. You, you may not have been feeding it spiritual food so that it's growing, maturing, and developing like it should, but it is alive. Your physical body, which is now alive, is going to be more alive spiritually than it is right now. There's a phenomenal change coming. But what you sow is not the body that is to be, verse 37 tells us. Then it reminds us not all flesh is the same. You know, human flesh is of one kind. Animal flesh is another kind. Bird flesh is another kind. Fish flesh is another kind. For that matter, heavenly bodies aren't the same. The sun is different than the moon. Who knew? Stars are different from planets. Stars are different from each other. There's some out there that apparently are huge compared to our sun. And our sun happens to be a star. Now, maybe people didn't know in the ancient world, but we know now there's all kinds of different things up there, there's heavenly bodies. There's earthly bodies. And everything has its own glory. Everything has its own body. And each of those bodies, whether it's a, a fish body, an animal body, a plant body for that matter, a human body, a, a planetary body, a, a solar body, a interstellar body, kind of running out of the adjectives there, they have bodies that are uniquely given to them, Suitable for purpose, let's say. If if, if what your job is, is to provide at exactly the right distance, enough light and heat for life to exist on Earth, you're going to have to be this big, this hot, at this place. Because all the other planets in our solar system, it doesn't work. The sun had to be exactly like it is. If your job as the moon is to reflect the sun a, and move at a certain pace and a certain orbit all the time and do all kinds of weird things like affect the tides, you know, to keep the sea from overflowing the earth, no matter what man does to it, you're going to be made a certain way. And these things, apparently, they were made so perfectly that everything fits perfectly. It's really astounding. And the more we know about it, the more we see all these details seem to have been thought out in advance. Man, isn't chance remarkable? Isn't just just things happening amazing, that things just get more and more and more complex and more and more organized? I do understand that the way it all happened is a massive explosion. That's what organized everything. And you can see where I'm going with that. That makes no sense at all. Nobody can really believe that. In fact, the more science looks out there and realizes if there was that, then it's gone out of that. It ought to be slowing down and getting ready, you know, in 100 gazillion years to start contracting. But wait a minute. It's not slowing down. What's wrong? Well, the theory's wrong. You missed it right from the beginning. We've got it right from the beginning. In the beginning, God. Everything else is explained by that. Now, that isn't what this is about. We're talking about our body. It's about, if you're a believer, we're talking about your body after you die, when it's resurrected. The glory of the heavenly is one kind. The glory of the earthly is another kind. There's a glory of the sun, a glory of the moon, a glory of the stars. All the stars are different in glory. But the bottom line is God gave all those entities bodies that are all suited to purpose. And the resurrection body that each of us is going to have is going to be suited to the purpose. What is the purpose? To live in the presence of God on a new heaven and a new earth at forever. I mean, not for all time, because time will be no more in a sense. Eternity doesn't deal with time, just forever. Now what are they going to be like? Well, I'm tell you what they're not going to be like, looking down at verse 50. It's not going to be just flesh and blood. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why not? Because flesh and blood dies. Flesh and blood is perishable. Now that's that's rather interesting. Well then what what does the text tell us about our resurrection bodies? Well it's going to tell us at least four things in the next couple of verses. We read verse 42. What is sown is perishable. What is going to be raised is imperishable. You do know that everything has an expiration date. You've got one. You don't necessarily know what it is. I don't know what it is. God knows exactly what it is. And he's not sharing that with you. But everything does. I mean, everything in our kitchen has an expiration date. I may joke about people who throw away bottles of aspirin because they expired five years ago. Uh -uh. but eventually they do expire everything eventually expires but think about your own body does it look like it always looked are you at peak you (laughs) I mean some of you are still moving toward peak you and I understand that you're you're really cute now and I'm sure it's going to get cuter But you're going to pass through perfection. You're not even going to know it when it hits you. And it'll be gone and you'll be looking back wondering about those good old days when it happened. But but as time passes, you'll remember, well, there were times when when I looked better and things worked better. Now, I'm speaking from the 75th year, so I got a lot of looking back. But eventually, our bodies, they don't just slow down. They, they, they start shrieking in a sense. Now, we, we sometimes, we, we get a little shorter. Our bones get a little more brittle. Our skin gets a little thinner. We bruise a whole lot easier. You know, we start losing things like our hair I and mean, our teeth and our strength and our stamina. Yeah. Oh, yeah What what can I say? Your general sense of well-being over a period of time diminishes as you age. You've got, you young people, you have this to look forward to. (laughs) But there's a far better answer at the end of this, I can assure you. You will develop new fears. Fears of losing your balance. Fears of falling. Fears of getting lost, of not quite knowing where you are. And the day is going to come when your spirit is going to leave your body. As Luther would say, your appointment with the worm will arrive. And the process of breakdown, even after that, is going to continue. It doesn't stop then. And you will ultimately return to the dust from which you came. No matter what we try to do to preserve you. You know, if you're going to live for eternity, you're going to need a better body. I mean, isn't that pretty obvious? I mean, I'm not saying you necessarily hit your used body, but you're going to need a better one to go forever. We're going to need a body suited to purpose. Now, that's what that introduction about all those things being suited to purpose was about. You're going to need a body suited to the purpose of living forever. And what does verse 42 tell us? You're going to be raised with an imperishable body. All of that breaking down, all of that falling apart, all of that falling off, all that, all that going away, that's not going to happen to the body that you're going to have. Now look at verse 43. Secondly, the body is going your body is going to be sown in dishonor. Here's something to look at. Now, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. I've been to a lot of viewings. You've probably been to a lot of viewings. You've seen people and you've heard people talk about how good people look. And for some, it is an improvement. But let me tell you, they all look dead. And if it wasn't for the the artisans, mortician's craft there would never be an open casket I mean that's, that's that's the reality and we all know that our bodies our bodies are falling away and in that in, once, once our spirit has left them everything's going to continue everything's going to end up falling away. It's a we all know what it's like I don't know too. We all know what it's like to see something dead in the road. And particularly if it happens to be out in front of our house, have to go out there with a shovel and move it. Or even bury it. I mean, once the life's gone, things happen. You never want to hit a a buzzard with your car. Is a buzzard a particularly nasty beast? Well, they eat some pretty nasty stuff, and you just don't want to get it all over your car. It's it's really a pretty horrible thing to say, but that's a pretty honorable way to think of people's bodies, but that's what's going on in the hole in the ground. verse 43 says, but when we're raised, contrary to popular culture and TV and movies, and we're not going to be raised with that body in that condition. It might make good video, but the body we're going to be raised in is raised in glory. It will be a glorious, beautiful body, and it will be perfectly suited for life in eternity. No, it's not right now. Right now, no matter how strong you feel, by the time it comes time to go into the ground or into the fire or whatever people choose, it's going to be sown in weakness. Now, you understand in life, a lot of really beautiful things are, in fact, pretty weak. I mean, a butterfly, a monarch butterfly is is a beautiful thing. And if one lands near you, you might be tempted to reach out there and pick it up. If you do, you will mar its beauty. When you let it go, you'll have little bits of butterfly wing, little flecks of yellow and things like that. Because it's beautiful, but it's fragile. It's it's, it's like a rose. It may be beautiful, and you can smell it, but don't touch it with your nose, or half of it will fall off. It's that sort of thing. The strongest part of our bodies are our bones. I could probably fall off this, this whatever it is, this is, stage here, and break something. That's, about, that's, that's the strongest part of me. Most of us can sprain an ankle just taking a step, getting out of our house. We're weaker than we think. We're all susceptible to injury. We're all susceptible to illness. The strongest of athletes are one tackle, one misstep away from it's all over. When death separates the soul from the body, and the spirit departs the body, the remains That corpse is absolutely powerless. It's a shell of a departed soul. But when that body comes back to life, when that body is resurrected, it will be reunited with that soul and it will demonstrate a power that is unimaginable because it's not a human power. The best you can do right now is the best you can do. That's not the best God can do. Your body may be sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power. Now, not hard power like we think, you know, know, tough as nails, hard as steel. Not that sort of power. We're talking about resurrection power. We're talking about the power of 1 Corinthians 6.14. God raised the Lord, and he will raise us up by his power the same power by which he raised up the Lord. We will have imperishable bodies suited to purpose. We will have glorified bodies suited to purpose. We will be made alive by the power of God because in the fullest sense we will have, verse 44, spiritual bodies which are perfectly suited for purpose. We will be sown, our bodies will be sown as natural bodies but they'll be raised as spiritual bodies. Now, that is not saying that your body will be a spirit. That's what happened when Jesus showed up in the upper room. The disciples were scared, afraid. They think he's a spirit. Jesus very specifically says, I'm not a spirit. Touch me, feel me. Put your hand in the holes. Have you got anything to eat? That sort of thing. Your body will not be spiritual. But it, and it won't be your natural body. It will be, in a sense, I love this word, it will be supernatural. After all, it is a miracle. That's what makes miracles miracles. They are supernatural. It will be a supernatural body. Not like Superman. You're not going to have superpowers. You're going to have the same power everybody else that has one of these supernatural bodies has. It will be supernaturally appropriate for the sphere in which you will exist for all eternity. Now, I wish I knew more about that sphere, but I know our minds cannot conceive of how wondrous it's going to be, of the things that will be revealed. And natural bodies, like you and I have right now, we're bound by time and space. You know, we all have a certain amount of time on this earth. None of us know how much it is. I don't know. I have no idea how much more time I have. But we're also bound by space. You do understand, if you're here, you're not in Walmart. You understand Jesus had the same issue? Jesus was incarnated. He was was enfleshed. He was in one place. The great Kenosis passage in Philippians 2 he yielded the independent use of the powers that he had as deity for a season. Now, he was led by the Spirit, and the Spirit could enable phenomenal things, but he wasn't everywhere all the time, he was localized. Yes, he could walk on water. I'm not saying you'll be able to walk on water. I don't know. Uh, he could see Nathaniel under the sycamore tree when he wasn't there. He, he certainly knew about that. But he also he also needed food. You know, he was hungry after 40 days of temptation. He needed, he needed a drink by the well, by Jacob's well, the well at Sychar. He needed rest. He was sound asleep because he was tired when that very dangerous storm hit the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. He suffered incredible physical abuse. At the end it culminated in what anybody would say were a series of mortal wounds. And at least to, from our viewpoint, from mankind's viewpoint, He died as a result of them. Now, we understand nobody could take his life from him. He had to willingly lay it down. But he did, and he offered up his spirit to his father. That was that body. But when he arose from the grave, his body was changed. It was no longer limited by time and space. Locked doors were not a problem for him. They're in the upper room. They're scared. The door's locked. Suddenly he's there. He spent 40 days and he moved anywhere he wanted to. He revealed himself to people he chose to. And apparently he didn't reveal himself to people he didn't choose to. That tells you something about a resurrection body. The witnesses that he revealed himself to recognized his natural body. They said, oh yeah, that's the Jesus I know. But only when he lifted the veil off their eyes so they could see it. You could walk with him all day talking with him and not recognize who he was until at some point he reveals himself. His natural body, which he still had, had changed in phenomenal ways into a supernatural body. It had been raised a spiritual body. And when he ascended into heaven, as our hymn writer wrote, and sat down at the right hand of God, his natural spiritualized, spiritual body ascended as well. And when he sat down at his father's right hand to await his enemies being all made into his footstool, his natural spiritual body sat down there too. When our natural bodies are raised, they will be raised as imperishable, glorified, powerful, spiritual bodies. All for the glory of God. And note how Paul concludes verse 44. He says, and I'm going to go somewhere with this, so pay attention to you. He says, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Everybody in this room has a natural body. There's an aspect of every single one of us that we can't see, which is the spiritual body. Those in Christ, they're not what they're going to be, but they are things of beauty. And those are out of Christ. Not necessarily so, let's just leave it there. I, don't, I know how C.S. Lewis described it. He said it would be a nightmare. You've never really seen a more spiritually lost people are a terrible sight to behold. The beautiful and the glorious in our society, the majority of which are lost. If we could see them with spiritual eyes, we'd be repulsed. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Think of the implications of that, particularly for those outside of Christ. Everybody's going to be resurrected. Everybody's coming out of the ground. Every, the sea's giving up its dead. Everybody's going everybody's to be resurrected. Daniel 12, 2 says, Some to everlasting life, some to shame, and everlasting contempt. That's a definitive statement. Looking at verse 45, Paul says, Thus it is written, the first man became a living being. That's, he's quoting, of course, he's quoting from Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord formed the man out of dust from the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the very breath of life. And that man became a living creature. Literally, the text says he became a living soul. So, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. But the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. When Christ entered the world in human form, he became the one through whom God was gonna give eternal life to every believer. Most people can recite John 3:16, but you have no idea how much it means. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son whom he loved. That whoever believed in him, and that means believed in him as he truly is, what he truly was, what he truly did, what he is right now, and the fact that he's coming back, will have everlasting life. Jesus Christ himself, praying to his father in John seventeen three, defined eternal life. What's eternal life? This is eternal life, he says, that men know you, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Adam's the first man. The last man, the last Adam, is Jesus Christ. And he's the last Adam because he's the complete fulfillment of the first Adam. When he was delivered up for our trespasses he defeated death. And when he was raised from the dead for our justification and I just quoted two portions of Romans 4.25 the Holy Spirit became an instrument of his will in fact that's why in 2 Corinthians 3.17 it's called the Spirit of Christ. Now There's only one will within the Godhead. All three persons of the Godhead have a single will. But it is at work here. And the spirit of Christ then, the Godhead's will, was granted the power to give life to his followers and to make their physical bodies like his physical body at the resurrection. You do know Jesus, before he went to the cross, did raise some people from the dead. He raised the daughter of Jairus. He raised the son of the wisdom of Nain. And most famously, of course, he raised Lazarus. They got back their physical bodies, and they lived the rest of their physical lives, however long that was, and then, having mortal bodies, they died. We all understand that. After his resurrection, immortality is made possible for his people because they're going to have resurrected, imperishable, glorified, powerful, spiritual bodies that are perfectly suited for life in eternity. It's a certainty. Verse, Verse 45 just jumps out at you here. Adam was the first man, but the second Adam the second Adam finished the job Adam couldn't finish. The first Adam, he was a soul but he was living in a perishable in the end, in a weak and dishonorable body. He was a living soul after the fall in a body that was perishing. He couldn't do anything about it. You now he did live 930 years and then he died. Suppose Okay, in exchange for eternity, would you take 930 years? Not if you're thinking. The last couple of hundred would be really dragging. And you'd have a lot of time to think about what a foolish bargain you made. People are making that bargain in exchange for tomorrow. For a little satisfaction right now. Think about how foolish that is. The last Adam had an entirely different kind of body. The first Adam's body was fashioned from the dust of the earth. The last Adam's body was raised to become a life-giving spirit, to be in Christ, is to have an everlasting eternal life in the bodies to come. Verse 46 is not the spiritual this first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Adam's pre fall body was perfectly suited for life in in the original creation. And he could have lived forever there, but he wouldn't have had a glorified body. There are people who think that when it's all done, we're all going to return to Eden. It's better than that, (laughs) it's better than a return to Eden. Eden wasn't as good as it's going to be. The first man, verse 47, was from the earth. He's a man of dust. The second Adam, he's from heaven. He's from heaven. Now look at verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are all those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, now we are talking about Jesus Christ, So also are those who are of heaven. If you have been born again, literally, the word Jesus used to Nicodemus was born from above. If you are of heaven, if you've been born from above, of heaven, then you're in Christ and you're part of the of heaven crowd. He came from heaven. He's returned to heaven. He's going to draw us to heaven. Now look at verse 49. Just as we have right now, and we all are, bearing the image of the man of dust. Every one of us. Adam had two arms, two legs, two hands, two feet, ten toes, ten fingers, you know, two ears, all that, all the standard equipment he had. Just like all of us have. We bear the image of the man of dust. We shall. Certainty. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. See, there's a contrast between the now and the then. Just as surely as you bear the image of that man of dust, and you all do, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, then you're going to bear the image of the man of heaven not your flesh and blood that's going to heaven, but it is you. And it's a great and more glorious you beyond our imagining. The most remarkable thing about all this is that what you have to do to have it, simply believe the promise of God. Believe the God that spoke everything to existence. Believe the God that loved his people enough to send his son to redeem them from his own wrath, which they deserved. All you have to do is believe the promises of God. Let us pray. Father our God, how your grace is beyond our understanding. Your kindness, your forbearance, your your patience, your, your limitless your limitless ability to put up with our failings and our our faults and our sins. And yet, Lord, having set your love upon us, you love us. In return, we have the privilege of loving you, of coming to know you better, of having your spirit indwell us and lead us to a deeper understanding of your love. Lord, we... We want to live our lives in such a way that we truly do believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain because we know it's far better to be with you than to be here. And yet, Lord, it is in your timing and for your purposes that we are here. So in the confidence we have in eternity with you, help us to live our lives in the present For your glory, in Jesus Christ's name, amen.